0: This episode was recorded at the Power Licklick NGO Forum held in Sydney on Tuesday the 22nd of October. The forum aims to strengthen the role and resilience of small and medium Australian NGOs working in international aid and development. The forum was hosted by the Kokoda Track Foundation, an organisation changing lives in remote and rural communities in PNG by providing access to education, healthcare and livelihoods and equipping the next generation of young leaders in PNG. Learn more at ktf.ngo. You're listening to episode 63 of Goodwill Hunters. I'm Rachel Mason Nunn and it's great to have you here. This episode was recorded at the PowerLickLick Lick NGO Forum in October 2019. I'm loving the opportunity to air these episodes from the forum with you whilst we confirm our interview lineup for the coming months. I'm so excited about the people that we're going to have on the show, and we'll also be airing two brand new interviews before the end of January, and then we'll kick off our full interview lineup from February onwards. So today's episode is a panel discussion on monitoring and evaluation. You'll hear three speakers. The first is me, and the following two are former guests of this show, Stephen Howes from the Development Policy Centre and Georgina Camp from Huber Social. I chat about some basic questions to consider when discussing monitoring and evaluation. Stephen discusses the role of academics and how they can assist you with evaluating your international programs. And Georgie discusses the research methodologies employed by Huber Social. I always love speaking at conferences and I especially love having the opportunity to meet our listeners. And there was plenty of our listeners at the NGO Forum, which was really special. All right, enjoy the episode.
1: Thank you so much for such a wonderful morning. I have the great pleasure of facilitating uh, this next panel on monitoring and evaluation. And I tell you, the inner nerd in me is so excited about this panel. Uh, takes me back to my uni days and I can't wait to hand the mic over to the experts because monitoring and evaluation is one of those things that whilst we know it is so critically important, uh, we find it really hard. So, it's great to have um, some insight from our experts today. So, today we're going to be hearing from Rachel Nunn, who's the founder and director um, of the wonderful Goodwill Hunters, that podcast that we've been telling you about today. We have Professor Stephen Howes from the Australian National... University and Georgina Camp who is the CEO of Huber Social. So we'll do what we've been doing to date. If you guys want to say a few words probably up here if that's all right just so that the people at the back can see you um, and then we'll hand over to an audience Q&A. Thanks rage
0: So before we kick off in terms of why I find myself on this panel and, and my background in this area, I've been working in international development for close to nine years now. Um, so I started my career with the World Bank, basically helping to make sure that the investments um, didn't do any harm and um, upheld the social principles of the bank, which was loosely tied to m um, From there, I had roles within a few different charities. So most of my work over the last 12 months has been in that monitoring and evaluation of international development agencies, but um, I've also done a lot of work on the donor side too. So the messages that Luke and I think uh, Emily shared earlier um, around what donors are looking for um, in monitoring and evaluation has also uh, taken up a lot of my time. So so what I'm hoping to run through quite quickly um, is just some of the questions I ask when I'm working with a new organisation to figure out what the best approach to monitoring and evaluation is for them. There's no (laughs) one-size-fits-all approach to m So it's really about understanding who your audience is, what resources you have and and what message you're trying to get across. So I'll go through this fairly quickly. Um, Stephen and Georgie will have a much more a uh, technical and specific approach than me. So um, we'll keep this pretty high level. Um, so the first question I ask <laughs> with M&E is why are we doing m and There are so many different reasons um, to undertake monitoring and evaluation. It could be because it's just a part of what your organisation does yearly. Um, It's a routine thing or it could be because you're trying to communicate a specific message to a donor. So some of the reasons you might evaluate. I think the number one reason is program effectiveness to ensure that what you're doing is actually working. Admittedly, a lot of the organisations that come to me um, wanting guidance around m and are doing it so they can communicate better with donors or attract new donors. It's rare that I hear, we want to know that what we're doing is working. Perhaps that's because you just intuitively know that it is, um, but the fact is you need to be able to prove it, right? So, I think program effectiveness is is the most important reason for monitoring and evaluation, um, and it also requires the most rigorous and technical approach to monitoring and evaluation. From there, um, you might wish to report to some of your existing funders to to maintain them as funders and, and to keep that feedback loop going or you may be looking to attract new donors. Um, in addition, we've talked a lot about compliance today. It could have, it could be part of your compliance requirements, either for a government donor uh, or for a private sector funder. Um, and then you could be creating a knowledge product. So, I think this is another really exciting reason to do M&E, and I'm seeing more and more um, organisations come to us saying... Um, we're looking to kind of prove that our methodology works and create a really useful knowledge product for the sector. As sort of a final reason that I don't see so often, but maybe we should, you could be looking to communicate with your beneficiaries in-country. So, finding ways to um, close the feedback loop with them. Some combination of those or or maybe something else entirely, does that, does that resonate as the sorts of reasons... So, the second most important question after that is, who is your audience? So, kind of ancillary to the first point is, the sorts of monitoring and evaluation that you choose to do needs to relate to the expectations of the person reading that report. I think to frame that in a bigger picture, we've all talked about the trends that the sector is seeing at the moment. Um, Charitable giving peaked in 1983. (laughs) steadily declining since then millennials found this a really interesting fact last week more uh, millennials than ever before are investing on the asx Um, and at the same time um, faith in business is at an all-time low so just 48 percent of people believe that business knows how to act ethically so i think we've got this real thing around trust and transparency at the moment whereby we've got a bit of a trust deficit um, in our corporate sector and as an extension of that i think unfortunately, there's a bit of a trust deficit in the charitable sector too. And so, I think the need to be able to communicate um, really exactly what the outcomes of your work are is really important. And so, that's when we're talking about the general public as an audience, depending on who the audience is, if it's a current donor, uh, if it's an internal audience, so your own staff, or if it's beneficiaries, um, the way that you communicate impact needs to be tailored to that specific group. More often than not, I think we sit somewhere around the top there of having (laughs) minimal or no funds for monitoring and evaluation. Um, If you're in that camp, you're not alone. Um, It's what I hear more often than not, um, either because monitoring and evaluation just wasn't included in the budget at the outset of a project, and I think we're getting a lot better at that, um, and we are including it early on, but sometimes it isn't, Um, or because you're doing, say, an interim evaluation and you only have the budget for your end of project evaluation. Um, You might have an M&E budget um, or you might have a partner organisation that is willing to fund monitoring and evaluation for you. And I know that Stephen will talk about um, the role that academics can play in that, but um, from a private sector perspective, um, I see a lot of corporates um, that are eager to partner with charitable organisations on um, a monitoring and evaluation exercise because there is some mutual benefit to them as well. So perhaps you've got a private sector partner who's interested um, in the the outcomes of your work, a university or a donor. Um, A topic we touched on earlier is that um, an increasing number of donors are willing to fund the stuff that's not what you do in country, your HR costs or your rent or IT or things like that. Similarly, a lot of donors are willing to fund monitoring and evaluation and I I hear that increasingly um, from philanthropic donors. So, so what can you do if you have no resources to do this? First option would be to do it in-house, which obviously has its own pros and cons. I would say that, If the purpose of your monitoring and evaluation is for program effectiveness, then you probably don't want to do it in-house. If you really need to determine that what you're doing is working, you need some really strong, rigorous data, it's probably not something that you can do yourself. Um, A, because of the inherent bias in that, and B, because assuming that you haven't, you know, you don't have a background in monitoring and evaluation, unless you do, in which case go right ahead. Um, But... Uh, yeah, I think uh, doing it in-house is probably okay for everything but an evaluation of program effectiveness. Um, using in-country partners. Um, if there is an organisation that you are consistently working with in-country, they're familiar with the environment, they're familiar with the stakeholders, what role could they play in taking a lead on monitoring and evaluation? Find a volunteer. Um I think this is a really great option, again, for everything but program effectiveness. Um, So, if you're looking to report to uh, donors, um, if you're looking to attract new donors and you need a nice report on um, the outcomes of your work, say, over the last 12 months, you can find a volunteer who's looking for experience in that space Um, and similarly an academic And we've touched on private sector funders already. So, just quickly, I wanted to give three case studies of organisations that I've worked with over the last six months um, that all had very different monitoring and evaluation requirements. So, the first one was uh, an NGO that needed to do an interim evaluation of their work. So, there was an end of project evaluation scheduled, but they had um, some donor compliance requirements and so needed to conduct an evaluation before um, the end of program evaluation was going to occur. So, obviously, it wasn't something they wanted to invest a lot of money in because they already had budget set aside for another evaluation. So, in that instance, the best option for that organisation was to work with a volunteer. Um, a highly skilled volunteer who was eager to have experience um, in the area that they were working in um, and they were able to cover the cost of that volunteer and ended up with a really nice 15-page report on the outcomes of their work um, in preparation for that end-of-program um, evaluation. The second case study um, is a, a bit of a trickier one. So this was an NGO um, that was operating 100% through in-country partners. So, they had no presence overseas. They didn't send their staff overseas. They're entirely based in Australia. Um, And they reached a point where they needed to attract more donations. um, And so, obviously needed some data to communicate with potential donors. Um, But without any in-country presence or on-the-ground experience, that was really (laughs) challenging for them. What they ended up having to do was um, ask one of their philanthropic donors to fund um, an external monitoring and evaluation consultant to go overseas and work with local partners to conduct that M&E. That probably could have been preempted had they either had some in-country presence or required their in-country partners to do monitoring and evaluation um, of programs, which which they didn't... Um, so that, so, that reached the point where they had to contract that out externally. Um, the third one, um, this one was a bit strange. Um, this was an NGO that was eager to start working in a particular highland region of a Southeast Asian country. Um, they had no experience in that region, um, but they wanted to do a feasibility study to determine if, if it made sense for them to work there um so what they ended up doing which was quite creative was approaching um, a private sector organization which was a tea growing company they approached and asked if they could uh, go and conduct an evaluation of their tea growing plantations and the well-being of workers on those plantations um, kind of for the dual benefit of getting some data for themselves to help them to enter that area and also providing a really great evaluation report and that ended up working out really well. So, why is data important? I, I think this is probably something we can cover more in the discussion, but um, the main point that I would make here is it, it's really important to acknowledge how you can contribute to existing data. So, I see so many organisations doing really brilliant monitoring and evaluation, but it's all kind of siloed. Um, because there's no central location where all of that data can go. And similarly, when we're starting a new monitoring and evaluation exercise, it's really hard to find what other organisations in a similar space have done. Um, So I think an important consideration in M&E has to be how can you contribute to data that already exists and how can you ensure that your data can be used by other organisations in future. So last point before I hand over, where can we share our findings? Um, Again, I think this is a really important consideration and um, you're not just doing monitoring and evaluation for you but you're doing it to contribute to the larger community of practice uh, of organisations also working in this space. Um, so, first location, I imagine a lot of people in this room are already involved in the ACFID communities of practice and... Um, so sharing findings through that platform obviously makes a lot of sense. Similarly, peer-reviewed journals, I'm seeing more and more organizations contributing to academic journals, which I think is a is a really um it's a really exciting thing to do, A, because it creates a lot of proof of concept for, for what you're doing and it gives your methodology and your approach even more credibility. Um, also because it's great promotion amongst a, an audience of, of peers. So if you've done m and there's a possibility of, of channeling that into an academic article and that's worth considering. Similarly, lots of online platforms like Dev Policy, Lowy Interpreter, um, lots of events like these ones um, where you can share your findings um, and I've sneakily put podcasts in there too. Um, so, I think that's everything from me and, um, if, yeah, would love to discuss um, any more of that with you throughout the day.
1: Thanks very much, Rachel. One of those case studies may or may not have been KTF, and we had a wonderful time <laughs> working with KTF uh, up in PNG. I'm thrilled to introduce Professor Stephen Howes to you, who's the Director of the Development Policy Centre. Stephen is the go-to researcher and thought leader on all things development in PNG in the Pacific, and I'm absolutely delighted that he could join us. Thank you.
2: It's nice to be here. <coughs> I'm, as an academic, I, I don't have a PowerPoint, I'm afraid. I mean, academics normally do, but I don't today. But I'm going to talk about the role of academics in M&E and uh, M&E morphing into research, because I think we want to think of that as a spectrum. Your monitoring and evaluation is the basis for some really good research. And, um, yeah, I want to argue it's a good combination. I want to suggest, uh, you know, based on some, I guess, general considerations, but also my own personal experience, um, both as an academic and as someone who's um, got very involved in a small NGO... And I work with uh, Family PNG, which is a uh, crisis centre in PNG. And Fiona Khan is here. She's uh, the CEO of our support group, Friends of Family PNG. So that is a small NGO, and we have quite a lot of academic involvement, uh, on, especially on the M and side of that. I think it makes a good combination. I got involved with a uh, small NGO, like I'm sure many of you did, because I uh, wanted to make a practical difference on the ground, but also it is a good learning opportunity, and uh, so we can contribute. Uh, to the greater good while making this practical difference in the lives of uh, at least a few people. Um, so what's in it, uh, first of all, from the academics... Or, ..or what's the advantage of bringing in academics into your m and research learning effort? Um, academics bring resources. Uh, they bring credibility. Uh, and I, I guess they bring some... They, they, ..they should bring technical skills to it. Uh, what do you have to offer to the academic, uh, well, you have a great resource, right? You are running an experiment, right? You're conducting an intervention, and that's of real uh, value to academics. I don't know if any of you follow the Nobel Prize in economics, but it just went to um, three evaluators, right? I mean, that's a particular type of evaluation that's now very popular uh, in economics and in social sciences generally, which is the RCTs, right, the randomized control trials, that's not suitable for every intervention, but it, it's if it's going to be suitable, it's going to be a small NGO, right? Because it's for pilot programs where you can't, by definition, a pilot doesn't involve everyone, right? So if it doesn't involve everyone, the people not involved are going to be your control group. So definitely, if you can get a control group, identify control group, which is just people you're not working with, then uh, you'll have academics all over you, <laughs> right? Because uh, you know the Nobel Prize just went to three academics who've been pushing this. Right, it is—it's the big thing. Uh, but even if you don't have a control group, and we don't, because we operate uh, in urban areas of PNG, and it's not really possible to identify a, a control group. But even if you don't have a control group, um, you probably have some very interesting data. And increasingly, you know, the other big trend in economics is using administrative data. You know, we have increasingly good computing power and we're increasingly interested to just look at administrative data and see what patterns uh, See what it tells us. So in your normal, you know, the M part of the M&E in your monitoring You're going to be uh, collecting data, right? That data is real asset that will make you attractive to academics So yeah, there's something in it uh, in that partnership uh, for both uh, yourself um, and the academics I've already said what the academic will be looking for. You know, they'll be looking for a control group. Uh, They'll be looking for administrative data, and they'll be looking for interesting questions. You know, an academic always wants a research question, which is probably the kind of question you've got, right? Uh, That you're, you know, it's why you started. You had a question, or in the course of it, you know, it's thrown up some questions. Uh, Those are the questions. um, If there's an interesting question, the academic uh, will, uh, will be interested. In terms of what you should be looking for from the academic, I mean, I think it's I just draw a distinction between consultancy and a partnership. I know partnership's an overused word. But yeah, if you hire an academic to come and do some M&E project, I mean, you know, they'll probably do a good job, but they'll just do the job at hand, right? But that's it's not gonna be their top priority, right? Their top priority is to publish. If they don't publish, they'll perish. Um, So, if you can get that interesting research question and you have these assets, which are your admin data or your control group, um, then the researcher shouldn't want to be paid, you know? At most, uh, you should think about covering their out-of-pocket expenses, right? But they're already covered by a salary and uh, their main criterion for promotion is to publish interesting research, right? So, yeah consultancies you know of course they're crucial at some points but for this sort of collaboration I don't think the consultancy is is the model right it's much more a partnership where you're both bringing something uh, something to the table so just to give you my the, the uh, my own example which is with this uh, family PNG so this is an NGO uh, that was started in lay in uh, PNG uh, back in 2014 and um, it was a joint collaboration between some Papua New Guineans and some Australians, uh, but on the Australian side, um, there was myself and another colleague at the ANU who's an epidemiologist. So she had more of a medical background, but she was able to use that to uh, develop a, a data input system, so that whenever a client came, you know, we on the f- we'd we'd get their their data, their their story, their background, their circumstances through an intake form, and then every time they interacted with us we'd uh we'd have a shorter uh, data form that uh, the caseworkers would also fill in and so we've had uh, like two and a half thousand clients since then and each client on average um, you know we see about ten times so we've got twenty five thousand data points you know it's a massive data set and it's not perfect but it's pretty good pretty good quality and it's now digital so it's updated. You know, I can't say in real time, but it's updated pretty quickly and pretty often. And we're going to keep building that data set and, you know, indefinitely. And it's a, it's a very unusual and very valuable uh, data set. So in that case, we were fortunate. It wasn't really myself, but my colleague, Camellini Lokuge, you know, as an academic, was able to develop that system uh, right from the start. And it's been very affordable, right, because she was, we didn't have to pay her. And uh, on the PNG side we have two data officers you know who so that's a cost you know we wouldn't otherwise have, but it's not a huge cost. but th- th- you know those forms I mean we'd want them anyway right perhaps not as detailed but most of that you know that's just administrative data we need to know who the clients are. Have they come before what did we do with this client last time? you know a client's case may stretch for um, years so obviously you need a record-keeping system. Um, and then, how, what have we done with that data? Well, we've done various things, but one example, uh, we brought in a criminologist, Judy Putt, another ANU colleague, who was very interested in the uh, in restraining orders. You know, that's a kind of one of these innovations that spread from Australia through the Pacific. And um, but did they work? You know, do they um, do they have any effect? So, using this uh, terrific database, you know, she was able to show that. Through, because uh, we were a sort of case coordination centre, by that coordination and, and getting the partners to work together, the police and the courts talk to each other, uh, we were able to push up the rate of issuance of uh, what they called IPOs in the PNG case. Right, so there was a high demand, and uh, from the women, and we were able to. I mean, we're by no means there yet, but definitely, uh, working with partners make the system more responsive and she's been able to show that research, uh, publish it, and then, um, you know, that's helped us because we've then been able to promote that research at conferences, try to get... We've got the uh, provincial magistrate uh, from Lay, you know, going around talking about this research, so that's good for him because he's doing a lot of the work, getting the IPOs out, and then encourages his peers in other parts of the country to follow his example. And then uh, Judy's been able to take that to DFAT and say, look, isn't this interesting research... And wouldn't it be good to do this in other parts of PNG and other parts of the Pacific? So that's now developed into a whole, um, a whole research program. And we're now working on the second phase, which is all right, these, uh, these are being issued, um, but uh, are they working? Are they helping the women who want them? Of course, that's an even more difficult question to answer, but nevertheless, uh, Judy's going to attempt uh, to do that, working in uh, collaboration with our caseworkers and, and drilling down into a sample uh, of that database we've got. So yeah, that's one small example of how we've been able to uh, collaborate uh, with academics. I think for mutual uh, mutual benefit. Uh, then finally, you know, how do you find these academics uh, if you do want to have if you do want to work with them? Well, I, I'm here, so um, <laughs> you're welcome to uh, chat with me. Um, in general, conferences are a good idea, and uh, we run the Australasian A conference. Uh, it's coming up in February. So that's a good place to you know that's a good mix that deliberately tries to bring together academics and uh, and practitioners. Um, there's the Dev Policy blog, Rachel mentioned that's a good way to get get the word out. Um, but yeah, generally I just I'd encourage you you know this is a uh, a good time uh, in economics. Uh, economists are sort of wary of big theory, and really looking for experimental uh, real life data. Uh, you have it to to offer. So I think you'll you'll do well if you go hunting. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Stephen. So I told you this was going to be the most exciting session with words like interventions and randomised control trials and control groups. It's bloody beautiful, isn't it? Um, and Georgina's going to take us to another level because you guys have really turned M&E on its side, haven't you? And we're very excited to um, hear about the work that you're up to. So Georgina Camp, everybody. Thank you.
3: Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, before I jump in, I just wanted to get a sense of who's in the audience. So, do we have many m and people or people in m and roles in the audience? Uh, and how about, like, people responsible for fundraising, not-for-profit leaders? Okay, cool. So, it's more on the leader side. Super. Well, as somebody that does social impact measurement, we have the benefit of working kind of at all aspects of the organisation, but also um, right with the people that are being impacted on the ground um, with the organisation themselves and then up to the funders. So, I want to try and keep this session as practical as possible and share, I guess, what we learn from working at those different levels um, around social impact measurements. So to do that, I'll talk about um, the social impact measurement ecosystem and then the unique Huber social wellbeing measurement framework and where that fits in and really that it's not um kind of we're not saying throw the ba- uh, baby out with the bath water but we've got a framework that often strengthens what's or and also organizes what's also already in place and then talk through some case studies and how that plays out okay so we've already heard today that it's about proving and improving and i guess what i'd add to that is I have a lot of conversations with charity leaders and they go what is proof? What's good enough as proof? Um, and we've often they're thinking that always that the gold standard would be as we've just heard from um, Professor Howe is an academic um, research paper I would say and that's got a lot of street cred but it's also not always accessible um, to all the organisations and also um, there's it can take a while to kind of start to get the results um, to inform decision making um, on a day-to-day level. So, I think whilst it's really powerful and a fantastic thing if it's available, um, as Professor Howe was saying, it's kind of a spectrum when it comes to social impact measurement or M&E. m um, and And I think at one end, you've got sort of quality assurance and you've got social impact measurement and then research grade um, papers at the other end. And you want to, lean obviously towards that research grade as much as you can um, whenever you can. So I'll talk about uh, Huber's um, approach to that. Um, And then I guess we've heard also that this is becoming increasingly important um, for the not-for-profit sector. As you're probably all aware, um, there's an average of nine new charities registered every day in Australia So, um, competition for funding is increasing and um, funding sources aren't necessarily increasing at the same rate. In many instances, they're decreasing. So, you want to be able to attract funding and strengthen that funding, but also to be able to do more with less, and that's about being effective. Um, And I think finally what I'd like to share is that uh, we do a lot of work in New Zealand and they've just released new accounting standards. And or tier one and tier two charities, so effectively that's just about the amount of revenue they bring in, have to have a social impact measurement system in place by January 2020. So we'll probably see something, because we tend to just borrow from New Zealand a lot of the time, see something similar come to Australia. So I would say if you don't already have this in place, you want to start thinking about how to do it and get ahead of the game so it works for you. Because the reaction over there, totally understandably is, oh gosh, it's just another level of bureaucracy and admin that we don't need that detracts funding and takes away from the actual work. But if you find the right measurement system, it will actually just help you do the work that really matters for you. Let's get into, I guess, the ecosystem. So currently we'd say we really only have a financial metric to measure value Um, and we're moving beyond that, but the issue that that creates is that whilst we recognise individual wealth and national GDP don't um, account for everything that matters in our life, we still rely on that heavily as our measure. Um, Since 2009, the globe has been spending 21% of world GDP on solving social issues and really by all measures things are getting worse so throwing more money at the problem is not the answer so we need to come up with better ways of actually measuring what matters. So what is out there and how do we measure? So I guess um, before I jump into this slide I like to think of it is there's frameworks, um, there's uh, SDGs, OECD, Life Index, you know you name it there's all in New Zealand the living standards framework and you probably have your own measurement frameworks within um, in-house so that's a way to kind of categorise your impact then underneath that there's valuation techniques so how do you show that they're being effective and that's things where you like bolt on a social return on investment you do a cost benefit analysis this sort of stuff familiar to you guys or there's well-being valuation as well so there's sort of two things in the ecosystem I don't want to get too bogged down in all that today but essentially to wrap it up we have really been following financial metrics for um, oh gosh you could say six years but it's probably a couple of hundred years and we're now at a point where we recognise we can do better than that so we're moving beyond GDP and we've seen things like the SDGs that expand to measure um, a whole lot of other stuff but there's limitations to them as well. Um, any, I'm not just saying the SDGs, it's kind of any framework that operates like this. So really at best what we do now to measure are we overall in a better position is we select a bunch of indicators and say if we're moving up on these we can infer from that that overall we're in a better position. But that's not always the case and it actually has a lot of challenges but I'll get into that on the next slide. So we're now looking at, okay, there's something beyond that where Overall, we can measure well-being um, and we're still probably, where we're at, um, at with that in terms of measuring success is that we're looking at it through an individual lens and I think as we're applying this with a lot of different Indigenous cultures and there's probably a lot of people in the room that would appreciate this, that their understanding of, um, I guess, success for humanity or successes for existence is um, much Further beyond our own individual well-being, but it's the collective well-being. Um, and it's not just in our lifetime, it's all of time. So we have a lot to learn from um, cultures um, that have uh, been around for a lot longer than the dominant Western culture in measurement about what success looks like. I guess I just want to summarize what makes an impact measurement framework useful. Um, Overall, you do want to be measuring what matters and I'll unpick that a bit when I get into um, the Huber framework. But um, we, we, do, we want something that it would be great if we had one language around this and I think there's lots of benefits to what the SDGs has done that. It's um, kind of harnessed everyone around um, uh, a universal way of doing that. However, it's not... Um, and I guess this is caveat and that they're trying to develop uh, standards around how you actually do the measurement under the SDGs, but at the moment you can't compare one SDG report to another and say who's actually contributing to one better than the other. Um, they need to be actionable. So it shouldn't just be at a point in time and say, we've achieved X, Y, Z. It's okay, what's the so what of that? How can you do that better? Don't just measure outcomes, but also what's driving that needs to be contextual. So, what I mean by that is, um, again, you can apply a lot of these frameworks and... Sorry, I'm picking on SDGs. It's not that I'm not a fan. It's just the easiest one that we all recognise. But if we apply that, you could say, all right, under this SDG we've um, achieved this against those indicators, but does that tell us um, the so what for that exact context? So, what's the value of that SDG in that context? So, um, yes. You might be working towards education, but right now the priority needs in that context is around nutrition and um, physical health and well-being. should be comparable, and also, um, we would argue, independent um, as well, increasingly so, because um, of that need to prove. I'll now get to how we've um, come up with our well-being measurement framework and why. So, this quickly, the background about Huber Social is um, we started Huber Social around six years ago, only became like a business two and a half years ago, Um, but we, the founders, we'd all come from um, varying degrees in the social sector or varying angles in the social sector. And what we'd come to recognise, whether it was working in international development or working locally with charities that too often organisations are held to ransom on performance metrics that aren't at all aligned to what they're actually trying to achieve Um, and at best that's just unhelpful because we tick the box to get the money and get back to the work that actually matters and that means where it is actually working we're not driving resources to it but um, at worst it's actually creating gaps where we need resources to go so um, an example of that locally is in New South Wales, government funds outcomes in the out-of-home care sector for a reduction in hospital days for young people and how many kids you can return to their family. And whilst those outcomes sound positive, Actually, if you look at the needs of the sector, a lot of those kids have high needs around mental and physical health, so they need to be in hospital and getting these services, or it's totally not appropriate that they get returned to their family. But you have all the big organisations orientating around those outcomes for the funding and that means the people that need it most in that sector fall through the gap and we're not solving the problem. So that's why measurement is really important. So we wanted to, we started with those two questions. What's the work that really matters and can we measure it? So as we worked across a number of different sectors, we started youth at risk, male survivors of childhood sexual abuse and victims of domestic and family violence. What we came to recognise is if you work with people, the goal's always the same. And it's about putting someone in the best position to fulfil their potential and achieve well-being. So, the next question was, okay, if that's the goal for all of us, how do we measure that? Sorry, I'm conscious I might be starting to go over time, so I'm starting to rush. So, when we talk about well-being, I'll just make the point we're measuring satisfaction with life. So, the framework that we use at the top level, the overall I call lighthouse measure, is... um, Subjective well-being, and we use a globally recognised question set to do that. So it's five questions, and that gives us a score for where someone is in their life. Underneath that, um, we recognise that everyone needs the capability as well as the opportunity to be in that best position to achieve their own well-being. So we measure under those two domains what someone's level of capability opportunity are, and. For the academics in the house, <laughs> this is an application of Amartya Sen, so the Nobel Peace Prize-winning economist, um, capability development approach. Um, and uh, what we do with that, what this gives our organisations is one a score for where the people that they're working with is in terms of well-being, but underneath that, a holistic profile of their needs. And we don't just stop there because you might be low on some factors and high on others, but it, doesn't necessarily matter what's the priority within that so we do statistical analysis to say right now for the people you're working with these are the things that matter most and then we keep monitoring and evaluating did that work when you did that and has the needs changed so that's how we like to work with organizations and I'll start to wrap up because I'm definitely getting greedy with my time unfortunately I do have to dash off later but I'm going to um Dob in a client of ours in the room, Caitlin Barrett so and the ladies from Love Mercy so this is the case study here in the middle um, and we've this has become a longitudinal study as actually all our projects have become now but we measured the well-being of the women they're working with in northern Uganda so uh, for those that don't know love Mercy run a micro agricultural loan program and um, I think at last count, it was 13,800 women. So, um, they give out a seed loan, train the women agriculturally in skills and then financial literacy. Caitlin being the CEO was really brave um, and we're lucky we get a lot of brave CEOs coming to us um, saying, actually, we've seen good results, but we wanna be sure that we're putting these people in the best position and actually doing what's right for them. So that's where this project started. Um, when the results came back, <clears throat> number one highest correlation with well-being was time in program. So that was a huge relief for them. It showed the program was working. Number two was access to water. That was a bit of a oh ship moment because they weren't providing access to water. So what did they do with that information? They partnered with Water for Africa, and this year we're drilling wells um, throughout northern Uganda. Um, so that's I guess another way that our holistic framework really helps to drive collaboration in areas Um, and I guess just to end where we're going with all this is we're building out a global well-being database so we've started with a lot of project data but we're getting more regional and national data sets now so that you'll be able to monitor well-being around the world and understand what's driving that right down to community levels so that we can help inform better decision making and share that data and you can have you can trust and have faith that that's being collected in a um, a standardized way Um, we've also opened up our system to accreditation sorry i promise this is the last point um, to make it more accessible because where you do have your big m e teams they obviously aren't going to necessarily invest in an outsider to come and do it. So we just train them how to use this system so that they can add that as another tool onto their belt effectively. So,
1: Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Georgina. Absolutely fascinating stuff. We could have given you the whole hour. Um, I think we've got time for two questions before moving to the next panel. So, Um,
0: Yeah, that was really fascinating. So for example, with your Love Mercy case study is it Quantitative analysis and qualitative? Oh, yes,
3: good point. Sorry, I really skipped over so much. Yeah, so we employ a mix of qualitative and quantitative. I know this one. Um, We have to primarily rely on surveys um, because it's a lot of um, self-assessed subjective measures. But then we also support that with focused discussion groups, direct observation and also mapping of secondary data sources. Um, And particularly around the opportunity side, we've developed a matrix that has a scale around and we define the different types of access, so quality, safety, location, availability, etc. So, there's a lot in that, but yes.
0: (laughs) And so, you just take a sample of that 1,400...
3: Yes. So, um, again, we really try and model academic processes around this as best we can. So, our standard around getting a sample is having a 95% confidence level in the um, statistical validation of that sample. with Love Mercy, we are really fortunate, we were able to survey 1,100 women out of the 13,895 and 95% confidence level would have been around 374, I think it was. So, um, yes, and then we to, where we can't get that level of confidence, we're very transparent about that and include at the back of our reports a transparency page that shows how we've treated the data at every stage of the data life cycle. Um, this is a question for the
0: whole panel. I see a lot, speaking to NGOs, a real, I guess, challenge with monitoring and evaluation of finding a little bit of money for an evaluation report. The organisation really, really wants to use that to prove, um, you know, prove a theory of change or prove effectiveness. But there's also a great, um, I guess, pressure to also use that same report to publish a glossy, look how good we are kind of donor kind of report do you think there is a way of doing both within the one evaluation or do you think they need to stay separate or do you have any advice to I come across this kind of daily yeah we've
3: developed deliverables to do all three so our package includes like a simple one page outcomes report for the sort of donor that doesn't want to digest a lot of information then we support that with a detailed dive into the what's driving that which we call a social impact performance report which is more to make decisions internally and then we produce a glossy social impact report which is more like an annual report that we probably definitely charge too little for and I keep getting told off but
0: yeah we've just tailored the three deliverables to achieve all three. Just quickly add to that point um Definitely I think it can be done in the one exercise. So we've just wrapped up a a program evaluation which took about eight months, Um, came back with a mix of, of... Positive results and areas for improvement. Um, And so there was obviously the internal facing report that went with that, which went to the organisation, and there was no expectation that they would share that publicly. And then from there, they were able to select the data that best served them to put in an external facing report to donors. So, yes, I think it can come from the one exercise, but I think it's two very different work products at the end of it.
2: Yeah, I, I think I'm very sympathetic. You know, I think that that is a dilemma. I um, mean, you know, it's good if you could try to do it, but it's a dilemma because who wants to tell, well, we, we failed, you know? I mean, who wants to give that story? Um, it's tough. You know, we, we face the same dilemma. I, I guess that's a risk you take if you get an academic involved. I mean, I've got a colleague who is going to publish, or is pu- in the process of publishing, uh, an article on a uh, project in Indonesia, you know, which tried to get communities involved to stop these uh, fires that cause haze. Yeah, and the pro- it just didn't work. You know, so, yeah, it is tough. I guess um, as a small NGO, you want to be confident, like you've, your basic model is working, and you're in a position to try different things if, if you want to go down that that route. Yeah, I think it's a dilemma for all, uh, and, and for government, it's a dilemma for everyone, isn't it? It's why there's so little evaluation done. Who wants to run that risk? Um, I just want to say another thing. I mean, I do think it is very, uh, I want to caution you against saying like, prove effectiveness. Right. I mean, it's very difficult. From an academic point of view, yeah. immediately, right, really? <laughs> like, your family PNG with our work, you know, with women suffering domestic violence, we're very cautious about saying that we're able to prove our effectiveness because who knows what would happen to these women if we weren't there, right? I mean, we just can't. So, yeah, you can, like, suggest, if you can have evidence for effectiveness, but I just want to caution you about proving effectiveness. That is extremely difficult to do unless you have a control group, which you may have, but, but most don't.
0: All right, that's it for episode 63. I hope you found that insightful and learned something new about monitoring and evaluation. And I look forward to sharing our latest episode with you soon. Bye for now.